Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to this month's Transit Voices, where we're speaking with Mike DeVito, who's overseen some of the most widespread changes at New York MTA. We're taking the agency from tokens to the MetroCard, then MetroCard to mobile ticketing, and then mobile ticketing to the Omni project and open payments. Now, let's get talking. Mike, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Ben. Great to see you. Mike DeVito, such a career spanning, well, the bits of your career that I know from the MTA, everything from MetroCard's beginning, then to sort of closing that with NFPS and then... uh, rolling into the new contactless EMV and account-based ticketing and all of that reinvention at the MTA. And then since then, you've worked at a few different firms as well as then going into some consultancy in this space. But I'm really excited to have the conversation now when you're a free agent, someone who who really can give us a reflection on some of those things and, and your analysis of how to get change into the world of transit. Just for the, for the listeners who might not have met you, can you just give us a, a brief potted history of how you got into transit, as well as some of the roles that people might might remember you for. Sure, absolutely, Ben. And uh, it actually goes beyond even MetroCard. So I was at the MTA. I, I don't often like to talk about this because it does show my age, but it has been over 35 years within the public transit realm, more focused on fair payments and collection and strategy and customer experience. But it actually goes back to the token, the days of the token. So I, I was fortunate, I am fortunate, to be able to say that I was there for these generational shifts in thinking at the transit agency, at the MTA, when we went from tokens to MetroCard, and then from MetroCard to uh, to mobile and the, and the Just Ride uh, Masabi platform, and then making the leap to this new fare payment system, the Omni system that's being rolled out today. So it has been a very interesting career. I do have a lot of experiences and insights to share. And again, I was fortunate to gain that that experience over these 35 years of work, primarily at the MTA. But while I spent the, the bulk of my career at the MTA, as you pointed out, ultimately retiring as the VP and program executive, the top executive in charge of the effort to launch next generation fare payment systems across the MTA family. I also had the opportunity after retiring to work for a venture-backed startup that had an interesting idea about fare payments. Ultimately, I think that technology was best suited for the real estate environment, and that's where that group is now kind of playing. But I did have a a real good experience putting the plan together for the go-to-market strategy. It gave me a very interesting perspective about a smaller firm, a more nimble and agile firm, and how they were able to do things that the larger firm could not. And that informed some of my thinking. I also had the, I was fortunate to be able to work with a, a group, uh, Sam Schwartz Engineering, a U.S.-based company. They are now affiliated with um, some global entities as well. The Sam Schwartz guys um, and gals, they were uh, interesting people to work for because they had this idea about public good. And, um, and that's something that was also very interesting to me and intriguing. My career has allowed me to do that. I, I was kind of a, not an accidental tourist, but I, I was, I didn't set out to work in transit. I sought out to be a public servant, but I ended up at the MTA and it was a, it's been a fabulous ride. And it's allowed me to do things for other agencies and other groups now where I'm able to share my experiences. And so it's been a heck of a ride. I do have some accomplishments that I'm very proud of at the MTA, this rollout of this new fare payment system and the ability to work with other agencies, even at the MTA back in the day 
the MTA was a, a founding member of this U.S. Transit Agency Roundtable open fare payments. And, and we were able to corral agencies around the country, large agencies as well as small, to get together and, and talk about common challenges and, and how to best address those in the fare payments realm. That ultimately led to a lot of the work that you're seeing at LA, Metro for sure, SEPTA, Utah, Washington, Boston, and, and of course, New York. So those are all things that interested me because they were all collaborative. And I, and I think that's one lesson that I've learned over the course of that career is that process and people are as important as the product. So when we talk about technology, that's extraordinarily important. But the supporting structures and these frameworks at these agencies, these public agencies, also need focus. And that's where I'd like to you know, maybe talk a little bit more about people and process. You bring up collaboration, and I keep seeing, especially the big agencies, kind of going and chatting to the other big agencies that have been at the forefront of the bleeding edge with all the, the daggers in their back. And the you know they found all the rakes in the grass and had to do the rework and the debug around that. It is great when some hero agencies do something for the first time. As you know, I keep banging the drum for not reinventing the wheel. Once your hero agencies have broken the mold and done the new thing and proved it out and not only got the tech to work, which is kind of an important 30, 40% of it, but they've really got it to deliver to the public. They've got it operationalized. They've managed to knock the corners off it so that it can be reliable in field, but also got the public to use it. It's an absolutely fantastic adoption in London, gradually getting there in New York. But now that that's known, why do we still have a procurement system that keeps coming back to reinvent the wheel? It's like when you have to stand up the process of... And everyone's got used to writing all the requirements and throwing the kitchen sink in because you, you get this nervousness that you only get to open up the Christmas present once every 10 years. So you better ask for everything in Santa's list every 10 to 15 years. And if, if you've asked for everything in a slightly different way every time between Utah and between Chicago and between everyone else, then you end up always having to get your system made custom and maintained custom. And then you own the only sports car or classic car or whatever in the world like this. So all your spare parts have to be custom made or your maintenance has to be custom made. And essentially, it stays still. And one of the weird things that is beginning to happen now is midsize agencies are starting to get comfortable with the idea that they bought a few things as kind of shared SaaS products and nobody's ears fell off. And so they then start getting more and more as a kind of shared platform. And now we've got mid-size agencies rolling out the account-based ticketing and the contactless EMV and everything else. And because they're all not reinventing the wheel, their project pace of getting all these features and mass integration, and everything else, that project pace is now outstripping some of the big agencies with billion dollar budget, like Denver, are rolling out migrations from legacy systems with plenty of integrations and CAD AVL and everything else. And they're getting things delivered faster than Boston is getting delivered. Is that learning going to move across? Or are the people and process not ready yet to take that step of saying, maybe we're not going to reinvent the wheel? I agree with you completely. That's exactly what I'm seeing in the industry. One time, the larger agencies, the largest agencies were kind of 
driving the bus, so to speak, I've seen a sea change in that over the past five, seven years or so, where, as you point out, a lot of the smaller and mid-sized agencies are now pushing the industry forward. And I think it does get back to this agility question. I do think it gets back to this collaboration question because the smaller agencies are more what I've seen more likely to collaborate and, and collaborate not only internally, which is extraordinarily important and, and something that I saw as a real big hindrance in the larger agencies mm. where everybody had their little fiefdoms, everybody had these, you know, stovepipes and they weren't going to collaborate or share across. These smaller agencies are more comfortable with, you know, this terminology of MVP, right? The minimal um, viable product. What is that? Let's focus in on that. Let's see if we can make incremental changes and show some progress to our customers and build some confidence that we know what we're doing. And these are things that the, the larger agencies are not very comfortable with. The procurement staff, the legal staff, and it does get to a back to a point that you're you're referencing where you know there's this perception versus reality. The the procurement folks oftentimes don't have a very solid idea about the technology. They believe that, as you point out, this once in a generation, this, this once every 10 year procurement is the be all and end all. And we are going to, and, and certainly this is something that we saw at the MTA, we're the crown jewel. This is going to set the market and we, this is our one shot and we are going to negotiate the heck out of this thing. And we are going to get the best deal. And we are going to tell these vendors that is New York, once you have New York, you can get everybody else. It's not entirely true. And we saw this tension, you know, I saw it up close and personal for many, many years, the MTA, where procurement is saying one thing, the project team is saying another. It's not a good recipe for successful execution, ultimately. A lot of this, I think, tracks back to these procurement rules that were originally set up. Granted, a lot of the staff today are dealing with these regulations that were put in place 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, when the environment was completely different and when the projects were not so technologically focused. Much of procurement is around bridges and asphalt and Absolutely. concrete. And you could be very specific about where you want the concrete and very standardized yeah. about the build standards and safety standards of what's going on. But even though the regulations around removing corruption and improving Absolutely. comparability are valid, their interpretation in a way that means you always end up over-specifying where Absolutely. your team isn't actually that expert. In fact, your team probably, it might be 10 years since anyone on that team has actually delivered a new software project or at least one of this scale, whereas the vendors have probably done about 100 in that time. But the agency takes on its shoulders the design risk of specifying a brand new thing. And I, I get the feeling that, as you say, 10, 15 years ago, when the new thing only had two or three main interfaces, that sort of worked. But now there's kind of five, six, seven, eight interfaces. I think it's getting, unless you are as big as MTA and you have a multi-layered IT team and payments team and quite a few different consultancies advising you on different levels. Most other agencies where it's one or two people they can't, they can't marshal those level of expertise to build and handle such a large software project anymore. Yeah, Ben, it's also this idea, you know, again, and I want to get back to that conflict of interest and the corruption, because it does harken back to a time, 
that still permeates today. And, uh, you know, science and nature may take care of this because eventually people get old and they fade away and new people come into the organization with different ideas. But, you know, back in the day, there wasn't a lot of trust given down to the lower levels of middle managers. It was very, you know, this military style organization where everything is flowing from the top and not a lot of trust is given down below. That needs to change, right? Because the people that understand these this, this complexity, these projects need to be trusted. We're paying these people, in some cases, a heck of a lot of money for their experience and insights. We need to trust them to make decisions. And that oftentimes does not exist in these larger agencies. But again, I do sense that that's changing. Some of the old guard is leaving and retiring. And I think some of the new folks coming up do have a different idea about how to deal with people and giving more trust. This idea about these procurement documents that are hundreds and hundreds of pages. Also, I go back to this example too, two examples on this perception versus reality procurement. Back in the day with the MetroCard, there was this concept around IP and it was around the source code. Lots of discussions about the source code. I mean, I can't tell you how many people in a room for you know what seemed like weeks on end talking about source code and a lot of the procurement folks saying, we need to have the source code. We need to have the source code. And you know, a lot of other folks saying, well, what are we going to do with it? Like, are we going to be prepared to support it? Again, getting back to people and process, are we going to have the structure in place, the framework? Are we going to keep on training our people to be able to use the source code? And it turned out we, you know, we eventually got the source code. We paid for it and we got it. And, you know, my sense was we put it in a safe somewhere, never to be seen again. And when we did need it 10 years down the road, we didn't have anybody that can use it, Ben. So we spent all that time wrangling about the source code. We eventually got it, but we couldn't really use it. Was that really you know, worth it? I can I see so. where the instinct came from to ask for the source yeah. code, which was to defend against totally falling out with a vendor or a vendor going bust and not ending up with an enormous investment in things which you then couldn't carry on. So there are other remedies. So yeah. there are remedies where you say, in a case where somebody goes bust, in a case where there's uh, a material breach or default on the delivery, then you can seize the source code yeah. to try and maintain it. But you don't need to buy it up front in a sunny day, everybody's getting on way, you know, especially where people are wanting to buy into 15 years worth of somebody's pre-existing development. You can't buy a single project and expect, expect to own it all and then to be able to resell it. I think the trust thing, though, is I don't think we're in a world where we can get total trust between the agencies and the vendors. But I think the way that we're setting things up at the moment is harming the agencies. Literally, the game is set up so that whoever lowballs the initial price wins and they have to make all their margin on change orders. And that sets up a fight straight away. And it's not the fault of the vendors. It's the fault of the agencies for continuously setting up the rules of the game that way and then griping about it and then saying, it's so annoying that that happens. And you go, literally, you are repeating the same thing you did before and expecting a different outcome when you've made it really hard for them to profit on the upfront and really easy to profit after that. And you could change the whole thing around without giving away trust. You can just say, 
instead of us taking the risk on all of the design and then having to pay change orders every time there's a slight delta from that. And the vendor literally saying it's in our interests to stick to the original design spec totally and charge the agency to make it work if they've ever made a mistake, because that's where our margin is. If we flip it round, as we try to do with outcome-based procurement and outcome-based payment, and literally say, we as a vendor who've done this 150 times, we'll take the risk on the design. You set the goal, and the goal is this many passengers per second, this satisfaction rating for the main demographics, and this uptime. And literally, we won't pay you until you do this. And instead of thinking about having to put hundreds of millions into concrete that once it's in the floor, you can't get it back. If you've got something you can launch fairly cheaply and not a lot of money gets put into the ground, then if it stops working, you don't get the sunk cost fallacy. This kind of idea that we're $200 million in, we better keep going or it's going to be embarrassing. You kind of get to the point that you figure out it's not going to work when you're only $5 million in on a, a giant agency and probably you know, 10 grand in on a smaller agency. So one of the chaps at Greater Dayton RTA, he was interviewed after he'd just done an outcome-based delivery of multi-channel with hardware rollout. So this had cash digitization, ABT, validator devices on buses, a whole bunch of other things, mobile ticketing, mass integration, all this sort of stuff. And especially because it had hardware in it, it's normally a thing that gets scary. And he said the upfront price was 20x lower. So their ability to write off the project if it wasn't working is very high. So they wouldn't have needed to have a huge damages budget or an enormous performance bond, which would stop anybody you know coming in that didn't have a big balance sheet and a lot of lawyers. He also came back and they, they had to give up all of that control over design. So they didn't have committees and committees, nickel and diming every second decision and then extending the delivery time. They got very fast delivery. And he, he came back and he said it was fun. It was fun rolling out something with hardware and all of these sales channels and everything else. And you came back and said it was fun. And it, it, it just has a totally different relationship compared to the we're going to design it all. We're then going to have the fight over change orders. We're then going to have to get all the committees internally to sign off every design bit. As And all those committees internally have to figure out enough to not make a mistake because this is their one big shot. You know, a couple of things you just just to touch on, you know, just and back to this trust issue, because it's, it's not just the agency. Uh, what I mean by that is that you know, there's an outside influence as well in a lot of these projects. One uh, important one is from consultants. And they're kind of rolling around all these projects. And I'm not talking about the technical advisory firms who are providing some specific expertise on the technical side that an agency just doesn't have. I'm talking more about the consultants that will come in and talk about the process. Here's how it needs to be done. We need to get in a room, put a technical spec together, review that technical spec, put it out for a bid, get responses back, go eventually back and forth on questions and answers, get a BAFO, you know, maybe do a second BAFO, which is, you know, crazy to me, but do that. They're putting in place this process that's been around forever. And they're going from agency A to B to C to D to E, putting this process there in front of these folks, and many agencies just go along with it. That stems from, I think, 
the self-serving nature of these entities that want to continue to get business, frankly. But also there's a, a lack of trust from senior leadership at the agency to their own project staff who may be saying, we don't need to do this. We can go outcome-based. You know, we're comfortable to play in that in, in that environment. And the senior managers are saying, no, 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 we need to get a third party to make sure that you're doing what you're, you know, the way you're going about it is correct. And that also is very harmful. As, again, I saw that up close and personal. It one is one of the reasons why it took us such a long time to get from where we were. Ben, uh, we had piloted open payments in transit in 2006, 2006. You know, we worked very closely with MasterCard at that point. We became educated in electronic payments, in the financial industry, in contactless technology. And at our core, at the core of what we were doing, we had what we call this cost of sales analysis. You know, when, when these agencies go forward in thinking about new fair payment systems, what are the goals and objectives? And we always went back to that tried and true. Well, let's go back to the basics. What are we trying to achieve? We're trying to become really efficient. We want to provide some customer enhancements too, but let's go back to costs. It's costing us this much money for providing Metro cards through our Metro card bus and van, through our retail sales network, through our station booth, through vending machines. We look at all of our in-system and out-of-system channels. We look at all the costs that were involved, including marketing and maintenance and some other communications. And we said, this is how much it's costing us to provide a dollar's worth of fair media through all these channels. Number one, we need to start shifting our customers to those channels that are really cost-effective for us. Transit benefit programs, really cost-effective for us, like on the order of just like a couple of percent, because the transit benefit companies were dealing with all the companies out there that were providing fair media to their employees. It was a real winner for us. So anyway, we went back to that. And eventually, you know, we worked through that pilot in 2006, very successful. It was the first globally anywhere in the world that we proved out this technology where a bank issued card could be tapped at a gated point of entry and the person could get into the system in the time required, right? In New York, that time requirement was probably a little quicker than anywhere else, but we proved it out. And then it took four years for us to go from 2006 pilot to a second pilot in 2010 that added more fair policy. We added more credit card companies. We added different transit services, but we did that in 2010. And by the way, the 26 pilot, we also piloted phones. This was before an iPhone, but we did have some Nokia phones that had, a, that had some NFC chips and we were able to do all that. But then it hit a kind of a wall in after the 2010 pilot. And we didn't get to put out an RFP out on the street until 2016. Mm. So think about 10 years from the first pilot to the second pilot. And that was not because we didn't know what we wanted. The project team knew exactly what we wanted. We had already done all the background work. That was really the bureaucracy. And that was really the institutional frameworks that were not in place to support us. Now, I'll also say that we proved out a technology in 2006 that was not able to be supported commercially by yeah, the, the, the banks. The banks hadn't issued it yet, and it would have been premature. It. But 
I think uh, you, you said it at the time. There's this great fear that once you've given the public a product, you can't take it away again. You can never backtrack. That creates an enormous fear and inertia against yeah. doing anything that you aren't completely committed to go the whole way. And that, that, that kind of shuts down the, the speedboat approach. And in that intervening time, other agencies jumped ahead, right? UTA went ahead and did a pilot. Although we wanted something that was more commercially viable, we, we were looking at those costs. I think some of the early entrants into this weren't really that focused in on, on costs so much. But it's something that, that I always kind of hit home when I'm dealing with other agencies, advising them on what to go back to, you know, go back to the basics. Just while, while we're talking about this, uh, when you did assess all of your channels at the MTA, was it coming whole channel costs? Was it coming back to that sort of 15, 16% cost of sale on average? Yeah, Ben, it was. It was a little less than that. It was, okay. you know, it, it, it does depend on, uh, and we have, we have some models that we use to get at this number for agencies, but it depends on what you include. We took the approach, it was kind of an all in. Anything that had to do with fair payments or touched on fair payments, yeah. we put in. Marketing has to be priced in, right? We we have yep. a big marketing budget that was devoted to fair payment to, to the Metro card. And we put all that stuff in and it came to somewhere about 12, I think it was 12 to 14% or so. Yeah, it's very close um, to TFL pre-contactless. But, you know, and that's one part of it, but you do need to drill down and we advise this all the time to agencies. You do need to drill that down. That top line number is good as a benchmark. But you do need to look at all your channels because some are all, I mean, there's a wide variance, right? Our booth sales, manpower, giving change out, that was somewhere in the order of 26, 28%. Whereas, as I pointed out before, these transit benefit programs, maybe two and a half percent, three percent. So that absolutely needs to get into the equation. The offsetting costs on uh, payment processing, so the bank card fees, that's an offset that needs to get into the equation as well. If you're increasing these open payment transactions, you're going to be increasing your interchange costs for sure. Those are all things that, that we do go back to. So again, the benchmark was about 12 to 14, but that was a, an all-in number. I think the real interesting insights are about your different channels and what are your different channels costing you and where can you shift customer behavior incentivize it in some ways to really reduce your costs. That's where the trick is. And, you know, the other point I want to, I want to make sure I, I mentioned this because it's an interesting anecdote and you didn't mention damages. Agencies spend a lot of time on damages for de delay and liquidated damages. Again, some of the older thinking is we just need to hammer the vendor. Vendor is, needs to be responsible for any delays at all, regardless. And we just tried to have a conversation, our project team, a conversation with our legal folks and procurement folks saying, let's just see if we can kind of change the dynamic a bit and see if we can get a better outcome in terms of costs and maybe create a better relationship too with vendors. If we just put in place a more fair, fair in quotes, um, dispute resolution process. You know, right now it was whatever we say goes and a vendor is pricing that in to their proposal, right? All of that risk that the, the vendor knows it's going to just have to soak up all of the cost of the way things might be done in a really, really risky way or in a way that the cost is going to be thrown onto them or documentation isn't available yet. And they're only going to find out when they get to look under the hood how expensive that is. They have to price it all in because no negotiation was left in there to say, yeah. we're not trying to stiff you. But if you remove this bit, we could knock 50 percent off the cost of it. So we're really trying to get people to say, 
If you want to propose an alternative means of achieving the same outcome, please let us know. If there are items which particularly change the price, move those to optionals, yeah. costed yeah. options. So yeah. an agency will see the Pareto 80-20, that actually 80% of the functionality they need can be had for 20% of the cost. And then they see these extra bits of special functionality that are going to give them a three-year project and require another 20 million up front. They go, well, you give me a price on it, but you clearly don't want to do it. It's not we don't we do or don't want to do it. It's just that's where all your cost is. That's yeah. that custom thing you want, whereas everything yeah. else is the same that another 200 agencies have. So yeah. maybe what you can do is get all the main stuff and then take a check pace and decide if you need the other bit, because by then it might be obsolete. You might have rolled to that point and no longer have that problem anymore. Because we we kept finding that a whole bunch of the riders who pay in cash don't pay in cash because that's the only way they can do it. A lot of them do it because that's the only convenient thing that fits in their day. And the moment you give them bank card tap and mobile and ID card and library card and veterans card as other things they can use, other tokens, the actual cash use on the bus dwindles away. And then you finally find the people with no choice on cash. Yeah. And then that's a, that's a more solvable small problem. Yeah, Whereas when you sure. when you start by looking at how the world works now, you, you, you look at it differently. We did that. That's exactly what we did. Tried to come up with a cohort that was really the problem cohort, right? Put When we looked at our customer base, there were a whole lot of people buying unlimited ride Metro cards for 120 something dollars each month at a vending machine with a credit and debit card. So when you think about a new system, well, that's an easy shift. Those folks are prime to be your first movers onto this new system. You can get that 30% away from your vending machines right away mm. by just moving them over. You know, transit benefit is another percentage and keep on, sh you know, sifting away all of these cohorts until you get to presumably and ideally what will be a very slim cohort of customers that you really need to solve for. Mm. And maybe it's the cash customer doesn't have a bank card, never goes into a station, doesn't work at a company that offers transit benefits. That's a much easier, to, as you're pointing out, a much easier solve than looking at the whole, in New York's case, you know, 8 million riders and 8 million rides a day. How mm. are we going to do this? So yeah, no, precisely right, Ben. The other point I would make about jumping off this ATC issue and ideas is there does need to be a, some conversation about having confidential meetings with potential bidders before their technical and cost proposals are submitted. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They have to have some conversations with, you know, smart folks. They're saying, what are you trying to achieve? Agency gives them some ideas and they then say, here's what we're saying. Here's how we can solve for that. You yeah. know, your point about leveling the, the playing field, it's taken to an extreme. Everybody has to have the same information. There can be no discussion, project team and potential vendors, everything has to go through these procurement folks. It inhibits progress. You know, it yeah. doesn't help the process at all. So those are ideas that that have to have more conversations. They need to become more standard in these projects for sure. Definitely, definitely. A bit more flexibility. Well, I, noting that we are running out of time, uh, I wonder if I could get your your picks for boondoggle and underdog. What would yeah. you pick first as your, your boondoggle, your white elephant waste of yeah. time? I'd like to call the boondoggle, the transportation consultant industrial complex. I think there are a lot of entities out there that are advising agencies on these new fair payment systems and other systems, frankly, too. They're not just solely fair payment systems, but 
there is this sense that I have that there are a lot of folks out there that are just kind of self-sustaining and providing input to agencies solely to keep the gravy train rolling. And I think it's to an extent where it's to the detriment of the agency itself. Many times these, these consultants are brought on board by senior leadership to the point before because they don't trust their own people. There's a heck of a lot of institutional knowledge at agencies. These folks know the ins and outs. They know the constraints. They know what they're trying to achieve, but senior management doesn't trust them enough to hear them out and bring on these consultants to do it themselves. And so I do think that uh, I think less emphasis needs to be placed on the consultants that are advising these companies. Again, I want to make clear, not so much the technical advisors that are providing specific expertise on the technology, but it's more the consultants that are coming in to talk about process. And I think that's where a lot of this breaks down. They almost are replacing the internal project staff that really does have the knowledge required to be successful to execute these projects. And I do think they're being hamstrung by, I, in many ways by these consultants. I think especially if, if, if they're leading to processes where very new technology and very new business models are trying to be procured in a very old way. If they've not managed to innovate that and they've kept on spinning it out into something a bit bigger, then that's not really delivering any value. It's just a repackaging of, of old ideas, really. And again, there's not a lot of new thinking. I saw the worst the examples recently in, uh, I'm going to call out a specific one. I think it was a California uh, Cal ITP contactless EMV procurement, yeah. where process became such the most important thing where a whole bunch of very very well-known names were all thrown out of this procurement as having invalid non-compliant bids because in some cases they were unable to get references from their other agency customers within 48 hours it's like these are other agencies in the middle of the covid crisis Nothing a vendor can do can make them jump within 48 hours. Yeah. That's insane. And they were written off for that. Others, it's yeah. like signature in the wrong place or yeah. not the right number of paper copies. Who won from that? How was the taxpayer and the citizen served? It it's was crazy. just crazy, absolutely crazy. When it should have been, we want people to show that they've got some experience in transit and show us your pricing for delivering a whole bunch of contactless EMV equipment and back office services. And it's unfortunate because there are some really good firms. And I think, you know, back to this point about these archaic rules, a lot of the smaller, more innovative and creative firms just don't have the resources to put up with all that. Okay, so that's that's a boondoggle. Let's let's throw okay. into room 101 old-fashioned procurement all of the circus that comes with that. <laughs> what about your, your underdog? What is the idea or concept that you think everybody should spend a bit more time with? Go back to that word again, again, collaboration, Ben. You know, collaboration, it never goes out of style. It's sustainable. It's also future ready, right? We always talk about being future ready. If you have a collaborative spirit and organization, more than nine times out of 10, you're going to be very, very successful. And we just need to create these forms for sharing and create an environment for it. I, I, I did see the power of this firsthand. Again, I, I have been fortunate, as I pointed out before in, in my career, to be able to be part of lots of forums that helped me as a person, but also the, helped the organization ultimately, whether it was, the, again, the U.S. Transit Agency Roundtable on Open Payments 
or the smart card alliance, the secure transaction alliance is what it's called today, but it used to be called the smart card alliance. We became participants in that organization early on, again, back in the 2006 timeframe. And it was this, this collaborative spirit amongst some transit agencies, not a lot at that point, but some vendors, consultants, providers, technology advisors, and everybody coming together to solve a problem or a series of problems for the greater good. That's how we became, that's how I became educated in a lot of these electronic payments and bank card processing ideas that allowed us to then see where we wanted to go and put a strategy together to get there. Collaboration, it's required, it needs to be part of the standard, it needs to be, you know, ingrained in a lot of these projects for sure. Have you followed any of the things going on at Neoride and EasyFair? The ultimate collaboration where Neoride started with a few agencies just getting together and saying, well, let's have a small number of us who all, we're very similar in our needs, so let's just get a bit of our next generation fare collection together. And then as they started going, some of the others joined in, and the others joined in, and they're all very different sizes, very different technical levels. Some of them want hardware, some of them don't. And they all started just coming on together and sharing all their experiences. And it ended up where some of them would then take a very new feature and the others would watch it. And then when that worked, then the others would catch up with that feature. And because they're all on a shared platform, all on, you know, literally running on the same servers, they then get the advantage that those that began earlier don't end up with the old version. They're all kind of on the latest version the whole time. So even if one of them bought five years ago, they don't end up seeing everyone new, getting new stuff. And they think, damn, if I just waited five years, I'd have known the extra things to put in my RFP. The one that did it five years ago, well, they can have the latest stuff that everyone else is on because they're all up to date. And this is almost the same thing which is happening now for the MTA, who, as you know, took on uh, the Just Ride platform. Yeah. New York MTA, great big used to getting everything bespoke, used to reinventing the wheel. They actually got a platform. And now some of the platform features they're wanting, but they're now taking on features and integrations which have been done by all these smaller, nimbler agencies collaborating and doing things so that they're linked to national apps and national other things. The MTA is going, oh, can I have that stuff for my platform? It's like, yeah, you're on the same platform. It's not 10 years old. There's no longer a designed in obsolescence. And so this kind of collaboration where... Other people try out a new thing, debug it. Then all the others can both get the debugged technical solution, but they also get to ride on the coattails of experience and operationalizing it. So they get, oh, that's how you did the customer outreach. Can we borrow some of your advertising materials? Because US transit agencies, a lot of transit agencies, they don't compete with each other. There's no competition to try and steal ridership. They really can go, yeah, yeah, have, have, have my adverts. Here's all the yeah. words. Yeah. And and I, I, I love that. And uh, yeah, if you love collaboration, go have a look at Neoride and EasyFare. So I'm happy to hear that that is going on. Interestingly, you know, tying this back to the, how we started this conversation, it's happening more in the smaller and mid-sized agencies than those large agencies, which traditionally were moving all of the industry forward. We're seeing a lot of emphasis from these smaller agencies moving the industry forward these days. So that's great to hear. Yeah, it's good. It's coming from both sides. I think I think yeah. the big agencies will still need a system integrator holding a lot of the little the little extra pieces, but they might be able to, just like you were saying with TFL, they might be able to take a huge chunk yeah. of another city's solution and then 
use that and add a few bits on the side of it rather than having to build the huge chunk every time. I think that would yeah. be, that'd be yeah. a cute thing. Uh, before Agreed. I let you go, uh, can you just give yeah. me a name of someone who you think it would be good for us to have a chat to who would enjoy having a conversation about their take on the transit industry? Yeah, when I think about all these different trends and where I see the landscape, there are a couple of companies that kind of jump out to me. One is this Humspire. I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Abraham. Uh, he does remind me of you. Not so much at the stage of the company. The companies are not at the same stages for sure. But while he does work in the transit realm, they also do work outside of transit. And importantly, back to this idea about doing public good and doing work for the public good, he'll tell you more about the work that he's done, the volunteering that he's done to help people globally, not just in his little world, but folks in India, folks in South Africa. And so it's a very interesting company. It's a very interesting experience. I think you'd get a really good perspective and some really interesting insights from Thomas. Brilliant. I'll, I'll have a conversation with Thomas. Yeah. Thanks so yeah. much, Mike. It's been fantastic to catch up again after the, uh, the COVID gap where we've, we've not ended up at the same trade show for a while. Yeah, yeah, always a pleasure to have a conversation with you and and talk through these things. We can go on for hours for sure. But yeah, always happy to have a conversation with someone. Indeed. And uh, hopefully you'll be uh, called in to consult on uh, upgrading the uh, procurement approach to take make better use of the fact that there are new models to be used in delivery. And there are ways of helping an agency to not have to take on all the risk itself. And uh, maybe the some of this thinking will will percolate up from the mid-sized agencies to some of the larger ones now. hope so. I look forward to that day, for sure. Thanks very much, Mike, and speak Thank to you. you soon. Thank you, Ben. Speak to you soon. Thank you so much to Mike for coming to speak to us. It's been fantastic to hear about where the changes need to come in procurement approach and bringing more trust internally to staff as well as to vendors to deliver innovation. I look forward very much to seeing more of the larger agencies start to benefit from sharing both solutions as well as experience on the industry. Those of you who are enjoying our podcast, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss any of the new episodes as they come out. I look forward to speaking to you again next month. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.